We are in Esther chapter 9 this evening. We're going to take half of it uh, tonight and half of it the next time we have a Sunday evening service. So uh, Esther 9, uh, verses 1 through 17, the, the Jews defeat their enemies. There's a, a great purpose that God has for this little book back here in the Old Testament. A lot of, a lot of great lessons in terms of uh, not only the sovereignty of God, but the providential care of God. And uh, in fact, as you will note on the uh, overhead here, that's the theme. God's providential care for his people. We've worked our way through the book down to uh, chapter 9, the Feast of Purim Instituted, which we will not actually get to this time. We're going to get right up to it, but we're going to have the build-up to it uh, tonight. A little bit of background here. The story of Esther is set in the context of the Persian Empire after the time of the Babylonian captivity. Some of the Jews had gone back to the Promised Land, uh, which they were permitted to do and encouraged to do, and really the land of Israel and the people of Israel go together. I mean, that's where God, in terms of his ideal will for them, is found uh, in the land. Uh, So some of the Jews had gone back to the promised land, but most of them remained outside the land in the context of of this vast Persian empire. Now, in that context uh, was a man who was a descendant of the ancient enemies of the Jews, an Agite, of the people of the Amalekites, and he rose up to become second in command in the land. might call him the prime minister, uh, right under the king. And his name was Haman. And the thing about Haman is he hated the Jews, just had a hatred for the Jews. And he really hated Mordecai, who also had a position in the king's gate, And he hated Mordecai because Mordecai refused to bow before him. In fact, the king had given a command that everybody should bow before Haman. I mean, you you really get to feeling feeling yourself, right, when when the king gives a command that everybody should bow before you. And and Haman was feeling it. Mordecai wasn't. And he hated Mordecai for that. And so he came up with a plot to have all the Jews throughout the entire vast Persian empire killed on a certain day. And he also had plans for Mordecai. He built a gallows 75 feet high. He was going to have Mordecai hung on this. In fact, he was going in, was getting ready to go in to to the king with this suggestion. I got a great idea what we should do with Mordecai. And, uh, well, we know the story uh, as as it turned out. Didn't go the way he thought. In the providence of God, God brought a beautiful Jewish girl by the name of Esther to be the queen. And she was used to thwart Haman's plot. As she exposed Haman, the king called for Haman to be hung on the same gallows which he had constructed for Mordecai. And following this, Mordecai then, the Jew, was promoted to prime minister, taking Haman's position in effect. Now, the king's law could not be altered. So Haman's law, calling for the massacre of the Jews on a certain day, could not be changed. However, the king allowed for Mordecai to write up a counter-decree which would allow the Jews to defend themselves on that very same exact day. Well, this new decree was then sent throughout the entire empire, and the Jews rejoiced that they were now able to prepare to defend themselves on that day. And that brings us to the climax of the story in chapter 9. Let's pick it up. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now, in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar... On the thirteenth day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. 
really, both of them. <laughs> they were both, uh, this was the time for both of those decrees. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred, in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. So D-Day had arrived. This was the fateful day that Haman had coerced the king into to signing into law that called for the extermination of the Jewish people. So uh, as far as the calendar, here's where we are. Uh, way back uh, here, you know, they had uh, decided, and by lot it ended up here on the 12th month. So then uh, three months later here, uh, another decree was that the Jews had the right to defend. So they had about eight months or so to prepare to defend themselves. Well, that day now, Adar, the 13th day of, that, of, the, of the month, had arrived, the 12th month of the year. And again, this is the exact day that Mordecai had written a counter-decree allowing the Jews to defend themselves. And it too had the king's irrevocable signature applied to it. Now verse 1b tells us the end of the story before telling us the story. In that the Jews were able to overpower those who had hoped to annihilate them. Uh, John MacArthur says this. Here is a powerful statement with regard to God's providential preservation of the Jewish race in harmony with God's unconditional promise to Abraham. God, in an everlasting covenant, promised Abraham and his descendants that he would be their God forever and that he was giving them the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. Well, this requires that they as a people not be annihilated. So it became Haman versus God. Haman's going to extinguish the Jewish people. God says, oh, no, you're not. Uh, I'm in an everlasting covenant relationship with those people related to the land of Canaan. And uh, in order for that to be fulfilled, they cannot be annihilated. Well, as noted throughout the story, on this occasion, God providentially brought this to pass, uh, their preservation, in contrast to what he miraculously did in the Exodus. And it's an interesting study as we think about miracles versus providence. In both cases, the supernatural power of God is put on display. But sometimes God works miraculously in bypassing the normal laws of nature. And sometimes he works in harmony with those laws to accomplish his objectives. And both reveal the supernatural power and sovereignty of God. Many times what we call uh, a miracle is really an act of providence. It's no lesser a thing. Uh, providence is, but sometimes, you know, just at the right time, uh, you know, the right thing happened, just the right place, just the right time. Everything comes together. But it wasn't really where you would say, well, there was a, you know, nobody walked on water there. It wasn't a suspension of the normal laws of nature. But... Clearly, the hand of God is involved there. That's providence. Well, verse 2 continues. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could withstand them because fear of them fell upon all the people. So it became kind of obvious on this particular day, those who wanted to kill the Jews evidently came out and were, were saying, hey, this is our day to, to, to kill Jews. This is a kill Jew day. Well, note the emphasis that, that the Jews uh, were simply seeking to uh, defend themselves, um, to, as it says here, lay hands on, which is the idea of to kill in this context, 
those who were seeking to harm them. And they were very successful in this endeavor on this occasion. And the reason for their success is stated as being because fear of them, that is the Jews, fell upon the people. Now, no one stood in the way of the Jews on this occasion, preventing them from dealing with those seeking to harm them. Now, in keeping with the theme of God's providential hand preserving his people, his name is not mentioned here. It's not mentioned anywhere in the book. But his fingerprints are all over this. Here again, we we see this reality of providence. Now, this fear was providentially brought about by God, which hindered the Jews' enemies and gave the Jews the ability to freely carry out their defensive objectives here. Well, when God brought his people through the Red Sea in the Exodus, which he did miraculously on that occasion, the children of Israel sang this song. And uh, note what uh, they were saying. The people will hear and, and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Uh, Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. Till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. In other words, they're saying, God is putting the fear on all these people to where we're going to be able to go into the promised land. God is going before us and putting this, this fear upon the people. Well, God has a way of working to put his fear in people. And like I say, he can do it miraculously, as he did in connection with the Exodus, or providentially, as he did it here in relationship to Esther. Verse 3, And all the officials of the provinces, the, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work, helped the Jews, because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. <laughs> Uh, God providentially worked through the appointment of Mordecai to the position of prime minister. And that carried some weight uh, with all the other governing officials in the land to where they now wanted to help the Jews. Suddenly it became very popular to help the Jews. Uh, You see, I think they they knew what was going on here. They they knew what had uh, happened in relationship to Haman, right? And so they were probably thinking, "You you don't want to cross Mordecai. Uh, In in their minds, if you do so, you might end up like Haman. I I don't want to be in that category. We don't want to cross Mordecai. That's kind of the the feel throughout the whole government at this point. I mean, after all, he is the prime minister. He's the king's right-hand man. So God had providentially put him in that position and providentially worked. So the Jews were suddenly in the favored position in the entire government. And when you got the whole entire government kind of favoring you, Boy, that really is to your advantage. Truly was a God thing. Verse 4, For Mordecai was great in the king's palace. Notice, he was great in everybody. I mean, he just had a tremendous uh, stature here at this point. And his fame spread throughout all the provinces. So this is the thing. This guy's not only got a big famous name in in the palace, but also throughout the entire empire. For this man, Mordecai became increasingly prominent. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. Even though the governing officials got it that the spirit of the king was now totally behind the second decree and not the first, still what you had on the books in relationship to this particular day was contradictory laws. There was Haman's law, 
with the king's signature calling for the annihilation of the Jews, that was still on the books. Esther 3.13. But at the same time, there was also another law now on the books for this same day, what we might call Mordecai's law, which allowed the Jews to destroy anyone who sought their harm. Chapter 8, verse 11. Amazingly, even though the governing officials backed the Jews, still there were many people in the capital city and throughout the kingdom who were still wanting to do the Jews harm. And the Jews responded with, quote, slaughter and destruction and did whatever they pleased with those who hated them. Pretty much had their way with them. Verse 6. And in Shushan, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. This is a capital city. Uh, citadel means fortress. So this was the, the fortified capital city. And uh, again, we're talking a, a massive picture here in terms of the, the, the Persian Empire here. Uh, here. Here's the capital city, also called uh, Susa. And uh, so, boy, you know, th- things are happening throughout the entire uh, kingdom. But in, in the capital city, there was 500 people that were killed that day who came out to say, hey, we're still wanting to do damage to the Jews. And the Jews had their way with them. Now, it is surmised surmised that Haman may have still had a good number of supporters in the capital city. I mean, that had been his base of operation for, for a long time. Well, whatever the case, there were obviously a good number of people in this city who still sought to do the Jews harm, and 500 of them were killed on this day. And then 10 other cities are also mentioned as seen in verses 7 through 9. And I've been doing a lot of the talking, so I'm asking for a volunteer to please read verses 7 through 9 at this time. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, we're just going to note those cities there. They're all good cities. But uh, verses 7 through 9, all these other cities also mentioned there. And then verse 10. The ten sons of Haman, the sons of Hamadetha, the enemy of the Jews, they killed. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. Evidently, the ten sons of Haman here uh, were also involved with those who sought to destroy the Jews on this day, and consequently, they were all killed. And note the emphasis here on the fact that Haman was the enemy of the Jews. Three times in the book, uh, this description is given of Haman, found in chapter 3, verse 10, chapter 8, verse 1, and now here in chapter 9, verse 10. So he's kind of like the, uh, the premier arch enemy of the Jews, very much in keeping with his Amalekite background and an enduring example of what eventually happens to them and those that align with them as the enemies of God's people. But then note the footnote here in verse 10. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. This is stated three times in this chapter. It's found in, here in verse 10, also again in verse 15 and 16. So there's an emphasis here. They did not lay a hand on the plunder. They didn't touch the stuff. Just defending themselves and taking them out, but didn't take their stuff. According to the king's decree, as we saw spelled out in chapter 8, verse 11, the Jews had permission to plunder their attackers and take their possessions, but they did not do so. Obviously, the Jews had agreed far and wide among themselves not to do so, but the question is, why? Why not? Well, we are not told the reason why. There's an emphasis here, but we're not told why they didn't plunder uh, those people when they, after they you know, killed them. They didn't take their stuff. Why? Well, to surmise that perhaps like Abram, they refused to take anything 
because just as Abram refused to take anything, remember, from the king of Sodom, lest he would say, I have made Abram rich, perhaps that same logic was in view here. Uh, perhaps the Jews at this point recognized the sovereign hand of God and realized that they were a God-made people, and therefore it would be inappropriate to take anything from their enemies. Yeah, we don't know for sure. Another thing to think about is they probably knew the history of uh, this situation with the enemy of the Jews, the Amalekites and, and Haman's connection. Uh, and it was, after all, 500 years earlier that Saul had the kingdom removed from him because he had dared to plunder the Amalekites, contrary to what God commanded. And then again, perhaps the Jews were simply wanting to show the whole of society that their motives were only about self-defense and self-protection and not about self-enrichment. I mean, that doesn't look very good to society if you're going after uh, the stuff. So maybe they were just saying, hey, don't, don't take the stuff, uh, which was clearly the converse of Haman and his edict, which called for the plundering of all the Jews' possessions. Well, verse 11 continues. On that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan... The citadel was brought to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan, the citadel, and the ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. Or what is your further request? It shall be done. So the king is really favoring Esther at this point. In effect, he recounts what has happened in the capital city and asks for a report on what has happened in the rest of the empire. And then he, in effect, asks her if there's anything else he can do for her, saying, it shall be done. And Esther is ready, as she usually is. Verse 13, Esther said, if it pleases the king, it's always very gracious, you know, very tactful. If it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to today's decree. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. Esther did have one more request. She asked that the Jews be able to defend themselves yet one more day uh, and take care of their enemies one more day in the capital city. And notice she's asking specifically in reference to this capital city. Uh, she did not ask this in reference to the rest of the empire, but only in reference to Shushan, the capital city. Now, it is surmised that Esther must have gotten word that on the next day there was going to be some some pushback. Uh, perhaps there were those planning revenge or a revenge attack on the Jews for what had happened that day. And so she's asking that they again be able to defend themselves on the morrow. Well, in addition, she also asked that Haman's sons, already dead, be hanged on the gallows, which would make a statement throughout the capital city that no one is to mess with the Jews. Uh, Henry Morris makes an interesting observation here. He says, one tradition relates that it was only the Amalekites or the Agites of the same lineage of Haman who actually tried to slay the Jews as Haman had, had planned. Uh, it's probably not a stretch to think that they were major instigators, but the text itself does not say that they were the only ones involved here. There's probably a lot of different uh, people involved uh, in, the, in the whole picture here. Verse 14, So the king commanded this to be done, and the decree was issued in Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. So the king granted Esther's request, and it was put into law and carried out. 
Verse 15, And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men at Shushan. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. So again, they took care of business the next day, killed another 300 people. Uh, Proving Esther was right, by the way, in calling for another day to finish the job. In total, therefore, the Jews killed 800 people in the capital city over these two days. Uh, People that were clearly out to harm them. And note again the emphasis here, that they did not lay a hand on the plunder. Verse 16, The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives, had rest from their enemies, and killed 75,000 of their enemies, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. So here we have a summary statement of what happened in the rest of the empire on the first day. As the Jews came together to protect themselves, a total of 75,000 of their enemies were killed. Wow, that's a lot of people. 75,000 is estimated in the Persian Empire at this time. There were about 100 million people. And so this is a sizable amount of the population. Uh, 75,000 that were killed on this day. Wow, that's that's a lot of bloodshed throughout the empire. Now, just imagine if there had been no counter-command that the Jews were allowed to defend themselves. Indeed, it would have been a bloodbath for the Jews, with so many thousands still, even after all that has happened, still wanting them destroyed after the counter-decree. But as it was, we have no record, by the way, of even a single Jew being killed on this day, or on the follow-up day in the capital city. don't have a record of any of the Jews being killed. Well, note the footnote here that they had rest from their enemies. And that is significant because this phrase really connects back to Deuteronomy 25. Back in Deuteronomy 25, uh, we have these words. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. And again, King... Agag was the king of the Amalekites, and Haman was a descendant of of Agag, an Agite. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stranglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around. Note that phrase, given you rest. In the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. Well, this is kind of part of that unfinished business here. Saul refused to carry out the Lord's command, as we see in 1 Samuel chapter 15, in regards to the Amalekites. Uh, we have this from the Nelson Study Bible. In Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19, Moses linked the people's continued rest Uh, from their enemies with the command to, quote, blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. There is that connection there. In this chapter, the blessing of rest for the Jewish people is associated with the destruction of their enemies. This similarity with Deuteronomy reinforces the argument that Haman was a descendant of the Amalekites. This group may have been quite large by the time of King Ahasuerus. Verse 17 this was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th, month of, uh, 14th of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Well, this becomes the making of what we now know as Purim. 
which we will deal with next time, uh, as we will see the Jews in the capital city put off their festive celebrating until one day later, because they were still dealing with some unfinished business, as we have noted, uh, on the 14th. But they, but they got there. For secular historians, this holiday is almost completely ignored or overlooked. But for the Jews, it is to be a never-forgotten holiday in history. And is still carried on year after year after year. This is one of the great occasions in the history of Israel during the times of the Gentiles, in which God providentially intervened to preserve his people. And this is largely his mode of operation during the times of the Gentiles, leading up to the 70th week of Daniel. So I want you to note uh, this. I don't know if you can see it. But, uh, you know, the, the uh, times of the Gentiles began with the Babylonian captivity. And the times of the Gentiles continue on uh, throughout the uh, 70th week of Daniel, concluding with the second coming of Jesus Christ at the, at the conclusion of the 70th week of Daniel. But I want you to note uh, that all during this times of the Gentiles, up to the 70th week of Daniel, God's face is said to be hidden from his people Israel. And that remains the case even to this very day. Uh, And it remains the the case until the war of Gog and Magog. Until that time, God's face remains hidden from Israel. If you study prophecy, you would find that is the case. In other words, overt, direct, miraculous intervention that is clearly a God thing is not seen. What is in view during this time is God's providential workings in preserving his people really in spite of themselves. And in that context of the war of Gog and Magog, which I believe takes place in the early days of the tribulation period, uh, notice what uh, we have stated there in Ezekiel 39, 23, 24. When this war takes place, God is going to intervene in a major way on behalf of his people Israel. And so much so that it says, The Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore, what happened? Therefore, I hid my face from them. That's why they went into captivity in the Babylonian captivity. That's why they were scattered throughout the whole world after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. That's why they were in that condition. And then he continues here. Therefore I hid my face from them. I gave them into the hand of their enemies, and they all fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions, I have dealt with them and hidden my face from them. The story of Esther is a classic example of God's providential care during the times of the Gentiles. When when the Jews are under the heel, if if you will, of the Gentiles, they don't see God's face. That's why it's the time of the Gentiles. And uh, here in Esther, we don't even have God's name mentioned. But his providential care is unmistakable. Flash forward to modern-day history. 
a spectacular example of God's hidden face and yet providential care of Israel was seen in the Six-Day War of 1967. I was a very young boy in those days. I don't remember anything about it, but history records it. Life magazine reported it this way at that time. Astounding was the only word for it. In 60 hours, the war that exploded upon the Middle East became a fact of history. Tiny Israel stood in the role of victor over the surrounding Arab nations that had vowed to exterminate her. Middle Eastern alliances, balances of power, even political boundaries were of a new shape, as though mutated by a biblical cataclysm. Seldom in military history has victory been so efficient or so visibly decisive in so short a span of time. So swiftly did Israel mount her assault that her adversaries were deprived of the means of winning almost before the world awakened to the fact that a war was in progress. The Israelis experienced an ecstasy which is given to few people of any generation to know. Wow, that was providence. That was God's providential working on behalf of his people, Israel. And even the Gentile world took note of it. Yes, indeed, the providential care of God for his people, Israel, is still very much a reality during this, the times of the Gentiles. And will be so, will be in place until God once again miraculously intervenes and shows his face through direct divine intervention in the war of, of Gog and Magog. Until then, God's face remains hidden. But his providential fingerprints are all over Israel's continued existence and preservation. And sadly, they don't even really recognize the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as being responsible for this. Uh, when we were in Israel, you know, we had a Jewish guide. And everywhere he went, he said, we've done this, and we've done this. And, and look at our success over here. And look what we, ha- we have done. Just full of Jewish pride. And uh, our guy, who was kind of our leader, uh, a Christian, said to him, uh, he said, uh, Yossi, how about you give God some of the praise? <laughs> and Yossi was just quiet. Didn't know what to say. But whether they recognize it or not, as I say, Esther is a book really about God in spite of the people. They were in compromise out here in the Persian Empire. They should have been going back to the promised land. God providentially preserved them in spite of themselves. See, well, all of these things were because... No, it was in spite of themselves. And that's where Israel is today during this times of Gentiles. They're back in the land. They're there in blindness. And God is preserving them. I know the Arabs want to drive them into the sea, and they, they, they want that. I mean, it beats in their hearts. They want it so badly, and yet they cannot do it. They've been trying all these years. 1948, I mean, within 24 hours of them declaring themselves to be a reestablished nation, here come all the Arabs. Couldn't do it. Ragtag band of, of Jews defending themselves, and were able to come through it. How, how is it? Providence of God. 1967, providence of God. Name, just go right down through history, down through God's providence is keeping them in place. Well, and praise God, his providential care of Israel is also continually manifesting itself in our lives. We are in his sovereign good care. Uh, He knows the very number of our hairs. He's 
getting easier with me day by day. But he, he knows every little detail about us. Sovereignly in control of everything. Uh, you know, it's really cool to think about this. Like in relationship to where my dad's at in life here, the providence of God. Our times are in his hands. Uh, we can rest. He is sovereign. He's providentially in control of everything. And we can rest easy there. Praise God for his providential care. Obviously on display in this case in relationship to Israel, continuing to be on display, even in the days in which we live, and even right down to where we live personally in our lives. Praise God for his providential care. Let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close in prayer.